All right, um, if you, hopefully you got a packet when you came in, we're going to be going through that. Tonight's going to be just a little bit different um, for a couple of reasons. I want to I tell you first, if, especially if you haven't been here before, um, the packet that we're going to be going through will have some blanks on it, uh, basically that's to keep you awake. Um, it's a joke, it's fine. No. <laughs> um, so, but no, the, the packet that we're going to be going through is for, is for you to fill out along the way. On the back is, um, or toward the back is all the verses that we're going to be covering. So any verses that appear on there will be in that. We may not read all of them, but we'll read a lot of them. Um, and we can, we'll, we'll certainly talk about them along the way. There are a couple of verses that, that I'm going to display for you as we kind of talk through. Um, it's going to be a little bit different than we've done over the last couple of weeks, only because we're getting ready, we, you know, we've been going through the prophets of late. So like on, uh, on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the minor prophets, and at, for the most part, I've been putting a lot of the minor prophets up here, and we've been going through passages of Scripture to kind of understand what the prophet is saying and, and help kind of tie all those things together. But along the way of discussing the prophets, eventually you have to come to Ezekiel and Daniel. And Ezekiel and Daniel, maybe you don't have an appreciation for exactly how difficult it is to read through those books just yet, but you will, um, because they are tough. Have you ever gone through a study on Ezekiel or Daniel? Any of you ever read through them? Yeah? How many of you at the end of Ezekiel and Daniel have been like, da, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, they're tough, all right? And I started thinking as, as I was approaching those books, and I thought, you know, when it comes to both of those books, there are a lot of opinions, all right? There are a lot. And, and it becomes kind of difficult as you approach those books as to how to interpret them. And, and probably you've sat through either a sermon series or maybe you've gone through some sort of book study or something like that on either one of them. And maybe you've walked away with some clarity, maybe you haven't, but maybe then you've read somebody else talk about it, and it was different than what you heard this person say, and you ended up going, okay, well now I'm just really confused, all right? So I thought, you know what might be beneficial is if before we go into Ezekiel and Daniel, I spend just a couple of weeks saying, here's how I'm going to interpret it, all right? Because here's how I interpret pretty much all of the Old Testament. You've probably heard a lot of this already, and that's fine. So if this is an old hat to you, that's great. But maybe this might just give some clarity on, that's why I'm going to interpret Ezekiel and Daniel the way that I do. And admit to you, there are passages of Ezekiel and Daniel that are hard to understand. They're hard for me to understand. They're hard for everybody to understand. And I'm not saying that I have the perfect solution to all of it. But... On the whole, I'm going a certain direction because this is where I think the Old Testament is leading, and here's why. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks, is just where I tend to take the Old Testament, where I, I tend to think the Old Testament is pointing. Kind of get a, a, maybe a pair of glasses that we should read the Old Testament through. Or at least explain what my glasses are like. Does that make sense, right? And I'm not saying that you can't have a different opinion. I'm not saying that you can't see it differently than I do, all right? I get that. But you'll at least know why I interpret the passage the way I do. We good on that? Clear? Okay. So, if you're in the pew and I say something and it makes you mad, that is the wrong reaction, all right? I'm just going to tell you that's not what we're going for, all right? That is not what we're going for, so we can talk about those things in a very civil way, all right? Because sometimes biblical interpretation gets people uh, uh, mad, all right? Um, and so we're just not going to do that. All right. And so, yeah. So check all the anger at the door. That's exactly what we're saying. All right. So when it comes to Old Testament prophecy, I'm just going to, over the next couple of bullet points, just open the door wide open. All right, here we go, okay? So, the fulfillment of Israel's prophetic hope. I'm going to break down these sentences, okay? Because those are big words, I get it. The fulfillment of Israel's prophetic hope, as portrayed in the Old Testament, is found in Jesus Christ and the believing remnant that follow Him, 
which he established at his first coming. Jesus Christ and his new covenant community, that would be the church, by the way, just say that, are the focal and terminating point of all prophecy. All right, what does that mean? That means that when we have this, these prophecies in the Old Testament, that, you know, when you get, especially, I've said this a number of times in building blocks, and I've said it a number of times in here, one of the most difficult aspects of Old Testament prophecy is when you get to them, the only way we can conceive of the fulfillment of these prophecies is revelation, right? You read some of these, and I've said this over the last few weeks in here, so this should come as no surprise to you. You read some of the things that these prophets are saying, and you go, well, I've never seen any of that, and I've never read about any of that in the history books. So the only way that I can conceive of this ever coming to fulfillment is what Revelation talks about. This must be something that I still haven't seen yet. This is in my future. This is in our future. This is sometime in the, in the far-reaching future when Jesus comes back, there's going to be all of this stuff that the prophets talk about that's going to be unleashed, right? That's the only way we can say the language of the prophets can actually make sense to us, is, is that well, there's got to be a time period where the sun turned to blood, or the moon turned to blood, the sun darkened, and, and you know, rebuilding the tent of David, and all of these things that the prophets say, this language that they use, the only way that makes sense to me is if I think about, well, maybe something's going to happen in the future where I'm going to look up at the moon and it's going to turn to blood. And right this very day, you can flip on the news, depending on the season, and you can hear some Christian preacher or something talking about a blood moon. You've heard this before? Oh, there's four blood moons coming, and is, they're going to be seen over Israel, and it coincides with... I don't know, Russia doing something, and Germany doing this, and America doing that, and all of a sudden this gets tied into some chapter in Revelation that I, you're, you don't know how to interpret, and, and all of a sudden that becomes the fulfillment of it, right? Because, I mean, outside of what we call a blood moon, have you ever seen the moon turn to blood, right? And so you go, I, I just don't know, I just don't understand this. The, the problem is, though, when you turn to the New Testament authors, and I've tried to do this over the last few weeks, if you've been paying attention. You hear all these prophecies in these Old Testament prophets, and then you flip to the New Testament, and inevitably, the New Testament author doesn't go, well, that's coming sometime in the future. They say, well, it's fulfilled what Amos said, the tent of David will be rebuilt. And you're like, well, when's the tent of David been rebuilt? What, where is this tent of David that's been rebuilt? And they say, well, when the Gentiles came to faith, that's the tent of David being built. And so they're pointing to the prophecies of Amos and the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and all of these Old Testament prophets, and they're saying, all of these things are being fulfilled in our day. And that's in our past. That's 2,000 years ago. What was it 2,000 years ago that was the pivotal moment in human history when all of these prophecies came to be fulfilled? And so what I'm saying is, the way we're supposed to read Old Testament prophecy is seeing the fulfillment of that prophecy coming in Jesus Christ and in the covenant community of people that follow him. You with me so far? You tracking with me? That when we, when we read the Old Testament and they look forward to a day when all of these things are going to come to fruition... The day they're looking forward to is the day you are currently living in now. And it's a day that so many in the church are looking forward to still. And, and, it, and, it, and sometimes you kind of, we kind of have to go, wait a second, guys. The day they wanted to see, that they longed to see, you are now living in right now. Jesus actually says this about John the Baptist. Do you remember this? John the Baptist is in prison. This is all free, okay? So he sends his emissaries to Jesus because John is worried. And he says, you know, I, are you the one or should we look for another? And Jesus tells him, it, it, it's very odd. He says, uh, 
the lame, go tell John this, the, the lame walk, the blind see, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John is looking for a day when this Messiah is going to come and do some Messiah-ing around the world. Get with it. And Jesus says, all the stuff that the prophets talked about is beginning to happen right now. And then his emissaries leave, and he turns to his disciples, and he says, he talks about John being the foremost of the prophets, and he says, but all of them long to see what you're seeing now. All of them long to be in this day. You're, you're better than all of them. Why? Not because they're actually better than John the Baptist, but because they're seeing what all of them just hoped to see was the ministry of the Messiah. All the prophets, what they're talking about is Jesus. They're all pointing in his direction, and he's going to fulfill everything that they're expecting. So what I want to do tonight is just talk about some of those things that we see in the Old Testament that the New Testament is telling us find their fulfillment in Jesus, not in anything else. Okay? So, and this will kind of get us to uh, just understand that almost everything that I'm saying tonight, there's somebody who disagrees with that, all right? And sometimes I'm going to talk about that person, and sometimes I'm not, okay? Uh, so just know that. Before Solomon's temple was built, God revealed his glory in the tent or tabernacle which Moses constructed. It was there that God would come, dwell, and meet with his people. The tabernacle and later the temple was where the people of Israel would draw near to hear from God, to worship Him, and stand in His presence. So, this is, we see in the tabernacle, we've seen this in Exodus even recently. They build the tabernacle. And remember at the end of Exodus, there's this building of the tabernacle. This is where God is going to dwell with His people as they travel around the, the wilderness. And they, they get it finished, and Moses is about to enter in. He's got all of his stuff, and he's ready to go in. And what happens? Do you remember right there at the end of Exodus? The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle, and Moses can't enter in. And then we get Leviticus, which is basically an explanation of how you're actually going to be able to go in, right? How are, you, how are we going to solve this problem? Because I can't go in if you're there. And, and God is saying, I, my glory is going to dwell in the tabernacle, later on in the temple, and the glory is going to fill that place, and there's only one way you can enter. You need to be clean, okay? And we, so we got to have a, a meeting of the minds here. So his glory is seen in the tabernacle. And then later Solomon builds the temple, and the same thing happens there. God's glory fills the temple. But what we're going to see in Ezekiel, when we get there, it's going to take some time, so just you sit tight. But when we get to Ezekiel, what we're going to see is Israel is sinning, they're going into exile, and the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. What does that mean? He's no longer meeting with his people. They have sinned. Their sin is egregious. Because you have to remember, what we're dealing with here is sinful humanity and a holy God. And their sin is not measured up against the sin of their neighbor. So it's not as though God is sitting there going, well, Vicki, you're pretty good. You know, and especially compared to that guy sitting next to you. All right? You're, you're really good, all right? So compared to him, you're pretty good, so you're in. And, 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 and Richard, you're not so great. And so, you know, compared to Vicky, eh, you know, and so you're not. No, all of us, the measuring stick of goodness or holiness is measured against him. And so against him, everybody's going to come short, right? So here is Israel who has sinned and God has been patient with calling them to repentance, but their sin has led them to the point where they're going into exile. And Ezekiel's going to walk out and he's going to say, and I saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple. All right? By the way, it leaves out east where the Mount of Olives is. In Matthew, we're going to see Jesus say to the Jews, your house is left to you desolate. And he's going to say that from the Mount of Olives as well. So we get that same picture there in the New Testament. We'll talk about that later. That's all free. All right. So his glory is dwelling in the temple and the tabernacle, right? 
So it's against that backdrop that the Apostle John says that Jesus dwelt among his disciples. And the word that he uses there for dwelt literally means to pitch a tent or to live in a tabernacle. And what he's doing is unmistakably calling back to the Old Testament where God's glory took up residence in the tent of Moses, that portable, the portable tabernacle or eventually Solomon's temple. So we, we want to read, I want to read a couple of these coming from Leviticus 9.23. Um, this is just, let's compare and contrast here uh, between the Old Testament. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then uh, Numbers 14.10, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Uh, Exodus 25.8, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. So that here, here we have this tabernacle being built for that, for that purpose. But then look at 2 Chronicles. It's about mm, maybe a third of the way down. Then the uh, five seven second Chronicles five seven. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim uh, five fourteen. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So they're in the same position. But then look at what John says in John one fourteen. This is the claim that he's making about this Jesus that he saw. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Paul will later say in Colossians 1.19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So you understand what the New Testament is claiming now about Jesus. They're using temple tabernacle language to say what was before the, the manifestation of the glory of God in the tabernacle and the temple is now taking place in Jesus Christ. So who is the temple? What is the temple of God? Jesus Christ. Now, maybe some of you, have, in just me saying that, have heard something opposite of that. Maybe you haven't. Maybe it's not ringing a bell. But maybe you've heard there will be a day when God will sanction a building of a third temple in Jerusalem. Okay, let me just take a time out here for just a second. It's free to. <laughs> let me distinguish, let me distinguish what God sanctions versus what Israel probably will inevitably do one day. I have zero doubt in my mind that there are people in Israel right now that want to build a third temple. No doubt, all right? I am, again, we were talking about this earlier. I, I'm 100% sure that that is probably going to happen, or it's at least that is the intent of some. Maybe it will happen, maybe it won't. But that's an entirely different question to what is God actually bringing about, actually sanctioning to happen, okay? There are some inside Christianity even that believe God is sanctioning the building of a third temple and going to restore temple sacrifices there. Yes, you've heard this before? But do you understand what kind of backward momentum that would create from what God has already established in the New Testament through Christ. The glory of God dwells in human form, in Christ, period. Never again will God ever be appeased by the blood of bulls and goats because there is a high priest, one intercessor between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. So that's good when it comes to a people whose holiness is measured against the holiness of God. Because you and I are never going to measure up. But if we have one who is a high priest, who is God in the flesh, 
who lived perfectly and died for us, and who is now interceding for us as our defense attorney, then on the day of judgment, Jesus Christ stands in our place and says, all of those charges are true, but I've paid for all of them, right? I don't want a calf standing next to me to defend me on judgment day. Do you? Of course not. Do you understand what kind of retrograde motion this would create in what God has established in Christ? Okay. So, the temple, under the old covenant, okay, follow me on this, the temple under the old covenant was a type or a foreshadowing of the glory of Christ. Jesus is now the fulfillment. Now we hear, see, and meet God in and through Jesus. And that is the only way to God. And only way that ever will be to God is by Jesus Christ. There's never going to be a point where God takes Jesus off the throne and has you meet with him again, or anybody meet with him again, through the offering of the blood of bulls and goats. So, the, the, the whole purpose of the temple was to teach this is what the glory of God is like. And what did it teach them? I can't walk in that place. That's what it taught them. I can't, I can't approach the glory of God. But then in the New Testament, here is the glory of God dwelling in human form. And we could meet with him. But it gets better. All right? Because additionally, we, the church, are the body of Christ and therefore constitute the temple in which God is now pleased to dwell. So God's residence is neither a literal temple in Jerusalem nor simply heaven, but His residence is in the members of His church. Let's... Listen to what Paul says about this. Ephesians 2, 21-22. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into, what is that? A holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see how Paul is now taking temple and tabernacle language, and he's applying that to the church, you, now the presence of God actually dwells inside you through His Holy Spirit because of the atonement that the God-man, the, the temple of God, accomplished for His people. So now, because of the work Christ has done in pardoning you for sin, God now dwells in you through His Holy Spirit as a member of His church. For, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So if you're reading Paul wrong, you might say if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Well, the Romans walked in and destroyed God's temple. Eh, family feud X, you know. Big family feud X. He clarifies the temple that I'm talking about is you. Well, that's confusing. Good grief. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? What is he talking about there? Is he talking about a building? No, he's talking about you. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is what God has established in and through His people in the church. But it's not just Paul, it's Peter as well. In 1 Peter 2, 4-10, As you come to Him, a living stone... He is the living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So he's that living cornerstone, as it were, and you're that spiritual house. It sounds like a temple being built. To be a holy priesthood, you're also a priesthood. To offer spiritual, you offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through whom? Through Jesus Christ. 
For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You understand, everything that he says there, especially in verse, verse 9, he's quoting from Exodus 19 where God called Israel out of Egypt and around Mount Sinai. He said, you're going, to be a, you're going to be a chosen race. You're going to be a royal priesthood. And now Peter says, he did it. All those things that he said he was going to do, you thought he was just doing that, and that, that then the prophets were like, well, there's one day he's got to build the temple back again and all this stuff. But Peter says, no, he done it. He's done it. It's in you. You're the temple that he was building. You're the royal priesthood. You're the holy race. You're the chosen people that he was... He was anybody that is that is following under Christ, is a disciple of Christ, is that temple that he now dwells in. Is there a temple to be rebuilt? It would be dishonoring to the sacrifice that Christ made for his people to go back on what has already taken place. Christ died once for all. It's not going to be undone. Will there be a building built? I don't care. I mean, politically I care, right? I mean, that's going to create who knows what, right? So I get that. Politically there's concern and, and all kinds of things, right? And what happens over there, sure. Religiously? Spiritually? As far as what God has set in motion? It doesn't matter. Okay. So you getting there, there's differences of opinion, and if I've made you mad already, just you're going the wrong way. All right, no, that's not the, what I'm trying to do. All right, so, so, so then we see naturally, and I, I started with the easy one, the temple, because I think we, I think most of us have kind of gotten there. We we understand that, but but I started there because you can see even in the temple, Jesus becomes the fulfillment of that, right? We're not looking for a third one. That's not what the Bible is pointing to. The Bible is pointing to Jesus, right? Okay. Now, in addition to fulfilling the meaning of the temple, Jesus also fulfills the Jewish feasts. As an example, the Feast of Tabernacles, and, uh, or, or we sometimes call it the Feast of Booths, was a time of festivity and rejoicing, of great festivity and rejoicing, uh, rejoicing. On the seventh day of the festival, the priest would lead the celebrants down to the pool of Siloam where he would fill a golden pitcher with water. And he would walk back to the temple and he would lead everybody back there with him. And then when he got back to the temple, he would take that jar filled with water and he would pour it on top of the altar. Now that altar was where the sacrifices had been just recently. All right, So you've got and they would actually do this. Over the course of seven days, they would do this. And he would go down, he would lead a group, a procession of people who are celebrating and rejoicing during this feast and festival. And he would take this pitcher, and he would fill it from the water of Siloam, and he would lead all the people back. They would be rejoicing. They'd hold palm branches and all this kind of stuff. They'd be singing and dancing and all this. And they would get up to the, the temple. There, the altar stands. is probably bloody, or at least it's got dried you know, blood and guts and stuff like that on it from the sacrifices. And he would take the pitcher... And he would pour it out on top of the altar. And, and it's, it's designed to say not only is there joy and rejoicing and the washing clean, but it is water emanating from the temple of God. Right? So, so the picture is what you see actually in Ezekiel. That there's water that's going to be poured out and is going to be emanating from the temple and it's going to fill all the lands and it's going to bless all the people. There's going to be rivers flowing out of this temple and it's going to, it's going to fill the land. It's going to make everything green and all the people are going to be blessed and, and they're going to drink to their heart's content, right? Okay, so that's the picture. So it's during this moment that a man from Nazareth who is there on the seventh day stands up 
and he proclaims himself as the fulfillment of this festival. Meaning, the fulfillment also of all that Ezekiel was prophesying to about the temple. So it would do us good to just read this, John 7, which you've probably read a hundred times, and maybe you've never put this together, what's going on. But John tells you, he gives you the detail to help clue you in as to what just happened. On the last day of the feast, the great day, that is the day that that pouring of the pitcher would not just happen one time, it would happen seven times. So they do it once a day, and then on the seventh day, they would do it seven times. All right? So, boom, they're, they're pouring it out. I like to think this was probably on the last pour. Maybe. I don't know. You know, maybe it wasn't. <laughs> on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now pause right there. In time temple. Ezekiel is going to talk about water emanating from the temple. Jesus now says, come to me. That's me. He's talking about temple. Anybody that believes in me, what's going to happen to him? Out of his heart. What does that make you? Temple. All right. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet, uh, was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? See, they're, they're getting mad. They're supposed to check it at the door, too. All right? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but none of, no one laid hands on him. Do, do you see how what Jesus just said here comes in perfect line with what Paul is saying, with what John is saying about Jesus being a temple, about you now being a temple because the Spirit dwells in you? John's now saying it here. Jesus is saying it in the temple. All of these things are lining up. And Jesus is saying that festival that you've been celebrating, where you've been pouring this water on the altar... That was meant to prepare you for me. That was meant for you to see what the washing away of sin is really about. That was meant to prepare you for what the temple of God is really meant to give to you. The actual presence of God dwelling among you. Alright. Fulfillment of the feast and festival. But in addition to that, he's also... That the Sabbath was also instituted by God as a sign of the Old Covenant for Israel. Alright, now this one's going to touch some of you. Alright, so, probably. No rocks, I don't think. I think we removed all the stones from here inside this, this place, so you can't throw any at me. Um, how many of you maybe grew up under a... Uh, a in Christianity, in uh, you know, good church-going folk and things like that, that when Sunday rolled around, there was it, it was explicitly taught, hey, we're not working on this day. We're not playing. I had a conversation with Joe and Sandra about this just a couple weeks ago, I think, at our house. Uh, but where it was like, hey, we don't work on Sabbath, all right? So we're going to sit down, and we're not going to do nothing. We re- we, we, my wife was reading books to... Uh, to our, our kids, and they were books that were written about a time back in, the, I think, the 1800s. And the, the, the kids in the book, it was like, and on, and on Sunday, everybody gathered around, and we didn't do any work, and we didn't do anything, and, and we already had this meal prepared, and you know, it was just warmed up, and that kind of stuff. For some reason, it never occurred to anybody, maybe, I don't know, that Sunday isn't the Sabbath. Anybody ever think about that? Sunday's not the Sabbath? Ah, minor detail. No, it's really important detail. Right? And nowadays, we'll have people that are actually very strict Sabbatarians. I love them, some of my friends. Okay? I love them. But, strict Sabbatarians, meaning Sunday 
is Sabbath day and we rest. And then when you say, well, wait a minute, I thought the Sabbath was meant to point to Jesus and that's already done and then the law and all that, what obligation do I have to law? And they would say to you, wait a minute, the command for the Sabbath was given before the law. You ever heard this? You ever heard this? God rested on the seventh day. So the command to rest precedes the law. You being a Sabbatarian and sitting still on Sunday has nothing to do with the law because it precedes the law. That's hogwash. God did rest on the seventh day, but the command... Do I do what? Do I? Oh. <laughs> mom, is your mama going to come here? <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> now follow me. Remember, don't throw any rocks. The command to rest didn't come into the law. God resting came before the law. The implication brought to the Jews was in the law. You must rest because I rested. Okay? It was taught to them. You must rest on the seventh day. But here's the, what happens in the process of coming to Christ. Paul makes it really clear in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, that all of this has come to fruition in Christ, that it was all meant to point to Jesus. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, so Paul is saying all of these were meant to point to Jesus who actually became the fulfillment of the Sabbath day. So God is telling the Jews, and this is another one you, you may hear, it's good to rest one day out of the week, yeah? You've heard this before? Well, the Sabbath is given for your good. It's, it's meant for you to rest because psychologically you can't handle working seven days a week. Yes? You've heard this before? It's a good principle to abide by. I totally agree with that, that it's true. It is good for you to rest one day a week. I will also say God has commanded you to be at church on Sunday. He's told us that in his, in his word. That's in Hebrews. All right. But you understand that the command to rest on the Sabbath day didn't have anything to do with their psychological well-being. It had everything to do with their trust in God. Do you trust that unlike your neighbor's, who work seven days a week, do you trust that on that one day I will provide everything that you need? Do you trust that I will provide you double the manna on Friday so that on Saturday you will have enough to eat? Do you trust me? At first they didn't. They tried to gather it all up and save it up for that day and it didn't work. And then they tried to gather it on Saturday and it wasn't there. They tried. But the implication of the Sabbath is... Can you trust me enough to rest that I will provide you for you all the days of your life? I will provide more than what you need. Now, your neighbors are working seven days a week, and you're running a Chick-fil-A, and they're running a McDonald's, all right? But do you trust me? Do you trust me that your Chick-fil-A is going to be more profitable than their McDonald's? Do you trust me? Well, that was the question for the Jews. Do you trust? That's what the Sabbath was meant to do. It wasn't about psychological well-being. Because believe it or not, every single one of us would work seven days if we could. And we'd figure out a way to make it work. We'd drive ourselves into depression and all kinds of other things. We would do it. But it wasn't about psychological well-being. It was about trusting in God. But now, what has happened, what Paul is saying, all of that was meant to point to Christ. So the immediate purpose of the Sabbath in the Old Testament was to provide men and women with physical rest from their physical labors. But we experience God's true Sabbath rest, not by taking off from work one day in seven, but by resting by faith in the saving work of Jesus. So to experience God's Sabbath rest, therefore as a Christian, is to cease from those works of righteousness by which we were seeking to be justified. He's giving us an eternal rest, Jesus is. 
And the Sabbath is meant to point you to that. Just as you were to trust in God that He would provide, now we're trusting that Christ did provide all that we need. That is nothing to say that, that you should work your tail to the bone every day of the week. That's not what I'm saying, all right? I'm just saying, theologically, what is going on with the Sabbath? And that is what the Sabbath is pointing to. It's pointing to Christ. Should you take off one day a week? Yeah, you should. You should rest. Are, should you be at church? Absolutely you should. That's commanded in Scripture to do that. But are we tying that back to the Sabbath? Well, no, we don't worship on the Sabbath. So it would be pointless to tie it back to the Sabbath. That's one of the reasons it transitioned to Sunday. Okay, don't throw stones at me, all right? I'm just saying. All right, now here's the, here's the last little fulfillment. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He's the fulfillment of the temple. He's the fulfillment of all these other things, the feasts and festivals. One of the primary metaphors in the Old Testament of Israel's rootedness in the land of Israel is that of a vineyard. He gives a vineyard as a metaphor for Israel. I took you out of the land of Egypt. I planted you in the land of Israel. I want to go through a couple of verses on this so you can see it, okay? Hosea, that's vineyard, if you don't have that written in. Uh, I'm going to change slides. Hosea 10.1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. That's not a good thing. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. The point is, this is the metaphor that God is using to describe Israel. He's a luxuriant vine. Jeremiah 2, 21, Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Isaiah 5, 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Isaiah 27, 2-6, In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In, the, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with its fruit. He's talking about a day to come when Israel will be uh, renewed. All right? So he says it would be a pleasant vineyard. Again, it will be a vineyard. Psalm 80, verses 7 to 11. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may, that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it, that is, in the land. You cleared the ground for it, as one would do for planting a plant. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea. What sea is that? That would be the Mediterranean Sea. What river is that? Be the Jordan River. So, he, the, the metaphor that God uses for Israel is that you're a plant, you're a vine. I took you out of Egypt, I planted you in this place, and you grew. You cast shade, you spread from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River, you filled the land that I planted you in, I prepared the soil for you, I cleared the ground, driving out the enemies that were before you, I cleared all that. They turned into a wild vine, they were sinful, right? So, this is a metaphor that's used continually throughout the Old Testament. There's more there that I've listed that I didn't even read through. But, but the point is that he's drawing these parallels between Israel and a vine, a plant. But now look what happens in the New Testament. There is a dramatic shift that takes place in this metaphor that 
used to be applied to Israel is now applied to Jesus. It's a dramatic shift. God's vineyard, the land of Israel, now has only one vine, and that person is Jesus. The people of Israel, in other words, cannot claim to be planted as vines in the land. They cannot be rooted in the vineyard unless, first, they are grafted into Jesus. Where does that come up? John 15, 1 to 5. You've read this. You know this. This is Jesus using this. I am the true vine. Now, you ever wonder why he uses the word true there? Because they know this metaphor. We're the vine. He planted us in this land. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Why is it that Jesus uses this metaphor? Because it's a metaphor they are well versed in. We are the vine. And Jesus is now saying all that you ever hoped to be in Israel or your forefathers hoped to be is me. I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you want or expect to be God's people, God's planting, you must abide in me. That's the only way. In other words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is rooting everything back into himself. Everything your forefathers wanted, I am. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that as well. So these same arguments can also be made with regard to every Old Testament feast, holiday, type, celebration, or institution. Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the Old Testament Sabbath, but also of the Old Testament Passover. You know that one, right? The Old Testament temple, as well as the entire Old Testament sacrificial system. And all of those have roots in the New Testament. The New Testament is, is making this argument to you. And they're trying to explain this to you. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things. So everything that the prophets were anticipating coming is fulfilled in Jesus. So what I tend to say to people is when we read the Old Testament, before you go and apply all the words of the prophet straight to Revelation and say, oh, that's got to be something John was talking about there in Revelation, won't you just stop at the cross first, all right? And let's cover all that ground. Because I can almost guarantee you 99 times out of 100, what they're talking about is the day you're currently living in, not the day you will one day live in. Now, truth be told, there are some things in the Old Testament, even in the prophets, that are yet to be fulfilled. There are some of those things. And we will talk about those things. But the vast majority of the things anticipated by the prophets is the coming of Jesus. They're preparing the nation of Israel and all of the people that will ever read those books for the first coming of Jesus and what he's going to do there on the cross. Because what we fail to understand sometimes is that the day that he comes back and establishes his kingdom in the full, it's all over. As soon as he breaches the sky, it's all over. There's no more repenting. There's no more... Uh, uh, forgive me, there's no more I believe now. There's no more of that. When he breaches the clouds, it's done. Everything's finished. And we're standing before the judgment seat of God. And all the repenting should have been done before that, at the hearing of the gospel. So what we're saying is that all of this in the Bible is causing us to look at the death of Christ and say the end has already been written when Jesus rose from the dead. 
He died on the cross. He atoned for your sin. God now sees you, if you are in Christ, He sees you through Him and through His righteous life. And His resurrection bought you eternal life. And so now on judgment day, He stands at your side as your defense attorney if you are in Christ. And if you are not, you have chosen to represent yourself and God help you. Because you're going to be standing there measured against His holiness. And it's not going to end well. Because how else would you measure a good deed versus a bad deed? What is that? How much does a good deed weigh? How much does a bad deed weigh? You know? How can you absolutely have assurance of eternal life? Well, the Bible gives the answer to that. The only way is in Christ. And it's not because of a righteousness you accomplish. It's because of a righteousness He accomplished on your behalf. And then died for you and took your punishment so that on Judgment Day, you don't have to endure it. So all that the prophets are anticipating, the end of times, the apocalypse, as they're writing, is the day that you're living in, where your end is sure. It's already been done. Judgment for you has already been decided at Calvary. You get it? All right. So... Where was I? All right. Okay. I, y'all got to stop me from doing that sometimes. <laughs> so therefore, interpreting, the Old Te- interpreting Old Testament prophecy in such ways as to suggest that any such Old Testament shadow might reemerge like the temple in God's divine economy is worse than going backwards in time. It's tantamount to a denial of the coming of Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of all that he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Get it? Thus, any attempt to interpret Old Testament prophetic texts that, as it were, leapfrogs the incarnate Christ will ultimately mislead us into expecting at some future time what God never intended and will never bring to pass. Okay, I want, I want to say about this, and, and this can be really hard, but, and I'm just going to come out with it, and, and this, if you haven't been mad before, this might make you mad, okay. There is a, a, a branch of theology where a lot of what I just kind of went against comes from called dispensationalism. Has anybody ever heard of that? You ever heard of it? You've heard of it, some of you. Um, dispensationalism was, was created by John Nelson Darby in 1830s, roughly. And it was a way of interpreting the Old Testament and the New Testament, and, and the, really the Bible, I guess, where it takes the Old Testament and draws a line between the Old Testament and New Testament and says, that was their day, that was God's program with Israel, and he just kind of, he got to the end of his wits with Israel and he sort of hit the pause button. And now he's doing a thing with the church, and he's going to do that for a little while, and then when he's done with that, he's going to get the church out of there, and then he's going to go back to Israel. That's where this third temple idea comes from. This is where all this comes from. I think that did more damage to our understanding of the Bible than, than almost anything. Because now we don't understand and appreciate what Christ has actually accomplished. Because he's accomplished it for us, but God's going to come back to Israel one day. But that's just not how the Bible depicts it. And even if there is a day, which I'm open, there may be, and that may be the right way to read Romans 9 to 11. We can talk about that later. But where, where God opens the eyes of a bunch of Israelites, where all of a sudden they just, the scales fall off, okay? And, and, and the partial hardening that was there is no longer there, but here's how that's going to happen. It's not going to happen through the building of another temple. It's going to happen by them coming to Christ through the gospel. That's how it's going to happen. If it happens at all, if that, if that really is how, and I'm open to that being the possibility, but it's going to happen that way. And, and when, we, when we teach differently, the Old Testament becomes irrelevant. We don't need it anymore. we got the New Testament. But we're spending tons of time in the Old Testament. Do you see that? 
I'm preaching through it on Sunday. We're teaching through it on Wednesday night. In building blocks, I'm teaching through it even more, about to wrap it up. And then, and we'll spend a fair amount of time in the New Testament as well. But there's a reason why we teach the Old Testament. Because it is still relevant. And the only reason it is still relevant is because all of these signs and shadows, David, uh, uh, Israel and Samuel, uh, Samuel himself, all of these things that we're seeing in Samuel, they all point to Christ. And then you, as a part of his body, benefit from all of the things that he gave because you're part of his body. You tracking with me? So when we get to some Old Testament temple imagery, and when we get to some land imagery, we get to some Zion imagery, we get to all those things, you may disagree with me. But you might also know, I know why he interprets it that way. Right? And it's because I see all of these things rooted straight to Jesus. To be fair, there's going to be some times where we read some passages in Ezekiel where you're like, oh, come on now right? Give me another temple, right? It's going to look like that. I, I grant you that. But I, I promise you, if the New Testament has anything to say, all of these things are rooted through Christ. And in, for us, there is great encouragement there. That means that I can read the Old Testament, and I can actually see things that benefit me there. Not from who God is demanding I be by a law, but I can see, you know, all these things that he's demanding of Israel— they cannot do. And, and, and when I look at those things that he's demanding of Israel, I see that I can't do them either. I'm right there with Israel. I'm failing right along with them. But you know who did do it? All these things he's demanding of Israel, Christ accomplished. And then all the blessings and benefits he got from accomplishing those things, he turned around on the cross and just gave them to me free of charge. So now I can come to Christ and own all of my sin. I can repent. I can confess. I can be forgiven. I don't have a temple to go to to sacrifice a blood, the bulls and goats. I don't have any blood to give. It would be worthless if I gave it. All I have is the temple of God, Christ himself, who died in my place to give me forgiveness and eternal life. Questions? John Nelson Darby. Yeah. What was his age That's the best part. <laughs> James asked, what, how did he deal with the Bible and where the Bible... The first time he floated his idea out there, people wanted to condemn him as a heretic. <laughs> and then he was persuasive enough to convince most of them. So, uh, so, yeah, that's how it came about. So when it came... I went... This is an aside, okay, so I went to the Dispensational Seminary. Dallas Theological is as dispensational as it gets. And I went in a dispensational. And when I got in there, I said, that's it? That is not what they mean there. And in every class, I came up wanting. That cannot be the explanation of that passage. Because it just doesn't make sense of the Bible itself. The Old Testament becomes relevant so many things. So it's not that I hadn't read it or hadn't studied it. It's that I did. And, and, and believe me, there are all kinds of things that James is pointing to that just, it's just a blatant contradiction of what he's actually saying. And so anyway, that again, that was free. Yes. So there's complications to all of that. And, and I have great friends that are dispensations. Some of you may have been and you grew up that way and, you're, and you maybe, maybe don't know the difference. And that's fine, right? That's fine. I, I'm just saying that I, I think there are better ways to interpret the Bible and better lenses to look through that take into account all of what Scripture is saying about Jesus and give us a better, a, a higher, a loftier opinion of who J Jesus actually is and what he did for us. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to study your word, to hear of what Christ did for us. I pray 
that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear it and to believe it. Whether we are of this persuasion or of that persuasion, I don't really care anything about that. I, what I care more about is that we be people who revere Christ and what he has done for us and who understand that he accomplished for me what I could never do. So we stand here grateful that on judgment day we have an advocate a defense attorney to stand in our place. And so, God, would you please help us understand that? I pray that you would increase our worship, heighten our appreciation and our love for you, that we may celebrate every time we come in here what you have done for us through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.